Today we're talking about the Dumont Network, TV's lost fourth network from the 1950s. If you think it's interesting that this network not only had the rights to NFL football, also was backed by Paramount, and ultimately had almost its entire library dumped off the New York East Bay River, well then stay tuned, because you're about to hear that story. The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. Hello out there in podcast land. Uh, Good morning, good evening, wherever this episode finds you. Welcome. Uh, Welcome to Inside the Box, the TV history podcast uh, on the what historians and uh, aficionados of television history typically refer to as the fourth uh, lost network, uh, the Dumont Television Network, which was on the air uh, roughly from 1939 to 1956. Uh, I'm your host, Andrew uh, Salvati, and with me today are uh, Jonathan Bullinger and Stephen Voorhees. And I think uh, one of my favorite, just before we begin, one of my favorite parts about the Dumont story, it's a little bit of a ghost story or an urban legend at this point. We'll get into it later. But uh, the the fact or the rumor that um, at some point after, uh, after Dumont went off the air in 1956 that their entire tape library uh, ended up in uh, Manhattan Harbor at some point. Uh, kind of sad story, actually, but, but one of my favorite ghost stories as I said, so we'll get into that in a little bit. I think at this point, you know, maybe we should we should go back for for some folks in the audience. So, really, what we're talking about this Dumont network is is something that was started by this inventor, you know, this uh, this uh, uh, Alan B. Dumont. This guy, I mean, he basically started. Uh, he, he he was an inventor. He was someone who um, is integral, really, to along with a handful of other uh, uh, guys who began uh, the technologies to to broadcast television. Um, and then really at, at a certain point, as we've been talking about, is Paramount comes in to try to infuse enough capital to really get this thing going. And I can only imagine that if we were sitting at that time, which uh, the, the year actually escapes me, Steve, uh, sort of the year we're talking about when Paramount comes into the picture. But, you know, it was 1938. Yeah. So, I mean, time. if I'm sitting in 38, I'm thinking, boy, I, I must see a bright future for, for the Dumont Network. Um, I believe they were already selling uh, selling their television sets. Which, uh, as we talked about in the as as we talk about in other episode uh, about the nerd, 1939 World's Fair, this TV was a luxury item at first, and Dumont certainly plays up that they are producing quality television sets. These are high end, and that'll also be their downfall down the road when everyone else catches up and, and does the cheapo versions, which is why we are allowed such mass uh, production of television and acceptance of television, but. You know, this looks like a bright future in 1938. Uh, Paramount's infusing cash. Dumont's a smart guy. He's really like, as you said, he was ahead of the game even before RCA and laying down in uh, using the coaxial cable uh, hookup between DC and New York. Um, this looks bright. This looks like they're gonna they're gonna end up uh, ahead of the game. And of course, that's not what happens. So, what we really have here is uh, one of the uh, really the first legitimate attempts is what we've talked about the fourth network. And it's kind of hard for us, I think, for some people who are listening right now to understand why the hell do we even care about the fourth network, this idea of networks. Because today it's what we get. I get most of my content either through what Netflix, Amazon Prime, right. Sony PlayStation Network, 
and I don't know. A little YouTube. A little YouTube, Hulu, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. But back in the day, for, for and it's weird that, because I think when you and I, or all of us were growing up, we were in the tail end of this, right? So really from, I'd say, the decade of the 50s, decade of the 60s, decade of the 70s, and maybe the first half of the 80s, the idea that there are three networks is hugely important. I mean, hugely important and almost omnipresent in, in their, in their uh, uh, reach. So that's really what we're dealing with here is that is that there has always been in my world, just as there was always this wooden, stupid wood grain television box glowy thing in my living room. Um, there's always been this idea that there's three networks, NBC, CBS and then ABC. So really, the whole reason we're talking about this is Dumont was actually a legitimate or could have been a legitimate fourth network and it didn't happen. But it happened for a little bit. And um, so we can talk about here is really I think we're, we're at the in, in the 40s here when we're talking about uh, network is um, they really start getting into some some uh, uh, riskier or I guess some more experimental programming um, along with this start of a network and I don't know if uh, if you guys remember some of the key stations but because uh, I don't remember some of the details at this particular moment but they were interesting in that they had I think a station in New York a station in DC station Pittsburgh so we're talking the key footholds for building out this network along with then working through toward, I think, almost the Midwest. Um, so what's also interesting is as you look through the um, as you look through the history of their program of their programming is, um, you know, some some stars who, who became rather those people who personalities who became stars started at Dumont or maybe they started at CBS or NBC but then they did like a couple months on Dumont and we can talk about that a little bit too how they sort of is weird especially for those of us who grew up in the idea of that you know I don't know what would like think of a favorite show when you were a kid Andrew what would you like watching oh I used to love watching Cheers that was Cheers, right? in the 80s right? Cheers is an, synonymous with NBC right before syndication of course but back then, based on what we're reading, I mean, you could find one show like in one market on Dumont and then another market, it's sort of, you know, buying right. time at NBC or CBS. Right. So it's, it's this fluidity is really sort of wacky. It's sort of interesting. So you're one station market and you can't fill a whole 24 hour day. Suddenly you find it, uh, Dumont and NBC sharing the same station and perhaps NBC is filling the day and Dumont programming is filling the other portion of it. And then NBC takes that program, right? They know oh, this is successful. We'll we'll take it. We'll we'll convert because I think what you find, at least my impression, is that Dumont was sort of the minor leagues of TV. When you think about all the innovations they came up with, from filming systems to the color system, they ended up selling these patents off, and that's what was um, making money for the Dumont manufacturing side to then infuse the TV side with capital. But at the same time, Jackie Gleason comes up. You know, becomes big and then gets lured away. So, in the in just in the example of Jackie Gleason on Cavalcade of the Stars, uh, you know, he was making sixteen hundred dollars a week with Dumont. Becomes a rather well-known personality on the network. He's obviously very talented. And CBS in nineteen fifty-two says, "We'll pay you eight thousand a week." <laughs> well, that you know, that's such a humongous increase that right. Dumont can't compete with that, and he leaves. And I think that 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 suddenly becomes a theme that Dumont has the first pro sports with football and baseball, and then they lose it, and they have Jackie Gleason, and they lose it. And so it's almost this breeding ground for talent, but they just couldn't sustain it. Let's talk about innovations, the innovations uh, by the Alan Dumont uh, Laboratories and Corporation. 
Um, I think one of the interesting things uh, that we've been discussing a little bit is that, uh, you know, since the Dumont network uh, and the laboratories were operating on such a shoestring budget, um, they were kind of forced to some extent to come up with some technical innovations um, that a, you know, more affluent and uh, more, more resourceful uh, network like NBC uh, wouldn't have to. Uh, so, Steve, you're gonna, you, you have a couple of those. Yeah, uh, so the manufacturing arm, of course, was supporting the broadcast network side. Uh, and you have to think about also the TV sales at the time. Dumont just had a fraction of what RCA did in television sales. So to come up with these new inventions, they, ha they had to try to keep reinventing the TV or inventing um, new items for the TV that would be a selling point. Why would you buy Dumont over RCA? So some of these that they came up with, um, one is the cathode ray tube. So uh, Dumont is working for DeForest in the 1930s and uh, is really pushing this type of tube uh, for television broadcasting. That's, it's a little more expensive to make, and DeForest didn't see value in it. They were very much about the spinning disc. So uh, Dumont gets frustrated. He leaves and opens uh, Dumont Laboratories, right? Uh, and, and starts making this cathode ray tube, which he would end up leasing out to other companies. And of course, RCA is using it, and, and all TVs become right. made with this. So a, a major innovation for television from Dumont. And we should just take a moment, and you know, we'll probably do an episode of this um, later on. But uh, at first, early television now, going back to the, you know, the 1910s and 1920s, and even before, uh, was operated on a spinning disc, um, uh, two sets of spinning discs. One is the transmitter, and the other is a receiver. And then the cathode ray tube was a you know fundamental innovation of that which used an electron beam to electrically uh, scan uh, the image and then transmit it. And, and then some of the other things that they came up with, the first color system, according to Ted Bergman in his book, uh, RCA was trying to work on a color system and had three tubes, one for red, green, and blue inside mm -hmm. the TV. Uh, and uh, Dumont Laboratories was able to come up with a single tube that could handle all three colors sort of intermixed uh, for that electron beam to then light up the pixels of the screen to, to form the picture. Uh, and the way the story goes by Ted Bergman is that Dumont invites Sarnoff and his engineers over to Probably see this. Probably and then yes, yeah, the uh, whole team. Yeah. To, to, to see this invention. And, uh, and they were so impressed that when they left, uh, Bergman said he looked out his office window and saw uh, Sarnoff frantically waving his hand at all his engineers because they couldn't come up with this invention. And in fact, Dumont ended up selling the patent to RCA uh, to Broadcasting Color, another infusion of capital for Dumont, if you will. And it's good to be NBC, right? With all the resources and funding of being the major radio network, right? You can just buy your competitor's technology if you can't do it yourself. Exactly. Wonderful. And then, then there were some other things, the tuning eye that they came up with that RCA would end up buying. Uh, and, and so Dumont Laboratories, we really need to give them credit, I think. Towards the end, some of their, a couple of their last um, inventions uh, during the network run was the kinescope. So if you hear of kinescope recordings, which is a, essentially a camera pointing at a TV screen, a way to record live TV shows right. on a single... Real, real low tech. That not only could they archive these shows and, and save them for future broadcasts, but they could also ship them out to their affiliates. So if an affiliate could not get a live broadcast from New York, you could kinescope it, ship it out, and now that program can run. So you're monetizing, literally, your programming for future advertising. 
Uh, and more sophisticated shows like CBS, which of course had more capital, had I Love Lucy, and that show or shows of that nature used three single cameras loaded with film that they could run through takes uh, and edit later for broadcast, which was very, very expensive, and Dumont couldn't afford to do that. So you, you find that Dumont comes up with these inventions out of a need to stay competitive, but also to serve their affiliates, and, and the Kinescope is one of those. Uh, and then finally, we have the electronic ham. Uh, one of Jonathan's favorites. And uh, essentially this was a, if you had a camera in the studio and you were filming a show live uh, for broadcast, I should just say pointing the camera for live broadcast mm -hmm. and no recording whatsoever, right. that you would have a film camera almost connected to that other camera. So you have two lenses, one for the ISO of the film reel and then the other one for the live broadcast. Yeah, and I, I think that's something, and, and maybe maybe I'm beating a dead horse with this, but some folks in the audience who are listening to this, they totally have an understanding of the history of, of, of you know, television or broadcast technology. But for those that don't, um, think about it as you have a really great camera, but there is no hard drive. There is no memory chip. There is no uh, circuit board. There's nothing in there based on the design logic of it to capture what it is you are, are recording through the lens. And that's where we're at when we're talking about this sort of Dumont live television. It's just a bunch of folks sitting in a studio in New York City figuring it out. And as Steve said, pointing the cameras at the action uh, happening, be it a Saturday morning kids show or a, or a religious sermon. And so they're like, well, you know what? We might want to actually record some of this, that whole idea of recording. And so as, as Steve mentioned, that, that, that uh, invention of the electric cam, uh, you know, really tried to uh, make that process efficient um, but then was ultimately uh, uh, rendered moot uh, when we did create a videotape. And what, what year was 1956. it? 1956. So right. right right at the same year that the network dies, somewhat symbolically, I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, videotape is, is and, it, and it changes. So, right. Right. yeah. Yeah. So given all of these uh, innovations from Dumont, I mean, I just I just love the fact that they're so scrappy that, you know, they come up with this stuff and, and a lot of it's great. And they're, you know, much larger competitors have to buy some of them off of them. But uh, you can really see, which I think is going to be a continued theme of this podcast, that uh, television, the development of television technology, at least in these these early days, 20s, 30s, 40s, um, it wasn't just, you know, David Sarnoff in a room with his engineers that kind of gave birth to television. It wasn't just, you know, the objective of a single track research agenda from a single laboratory. No, it took, you know, a lot of different innovations from a lot of different people, a lot of investments, a lot of trials, a lot of failures, um, and a lot of uh, sneaking around and uh, stealing inventions as well, um, which we'll probably get into at some other time. If we can, let's talk about programming a little bit, because I think what Jonathan just brought up is a great segue into being innovative. It wasn't only the inventions that Dumont came up with, but some of the programs that they came up with that you know, they didn't have the radio stars coming over from TV. So they had to sort of discover their talent, come up with these formats and um, and kind of fill time. They, they needed time filler. And believe it or not, the NFL was one of those time fillers, which is hard to believe nowadays. But um, a couple of programs that um, Jonathan had mentioned before, right, with Jackie Gleason and Ernie Kovacs, right. Mike Wallace from 60 Minute yep. fame, right, early, yeah, was early very Mike early Wallace. on on Dumont. Uh, Major League Baseball, the NFL, which I think at the time and was the National Football Association, right. but same and, teams. And they also they also kept bringing in money from uh, boxing, even if even after they stopped yep. doing the uh, NFL broadcast. We're talking about really the early 50s, like 51 to 55. 
this is you know roughly anywhere from seven to to five years earlier before NFL becomes television, right? This right. is the, where the, the the 58 championship game and Johnny Unitas and Alan Amici and all this sort of stuff. Um, but what was interesting is today they would never do this, but they didn't really negotiate as a league with Dumont. Dumont actually negotiated with individual teams to get mm-hmm. those broadcast rights. Um, I think only once, and it might have been the Pro Bowl, and that was like right at the last minute they actually, I think, negotiated with the league, um, although they didn't end up broadcasting it because they didn't have enough affili- affiliates to show it in most <laughs> markets. But obviously it's hilarious to us right now because, again, as we're taping this, we are currently, if you're paying attention, it's hard not to see it even if you, you're trying not to. We are getting crushed under the behemoth that is the National Football League right now. You know, billion-dollar business. So much to the point where they they not only are broadcasting their own games, but while doing so, still get the networks to pony up huge licensing fees so they just get a taste of those broadcasts. Yeah. So the idea that we're talking about a time when uh, Little Dumont Network says, oh, we can give you 75 grand to show, you know, the, the championship game. But like 75 grand for that and didn't even show in all the markets. And, and had it been on NBC, it would have covered much more of the country. But again, and we've said this a million times now, had they been able to hold on past 56, had they been able to fight for those contracts, had they built out the network, you might have, Dumont and the NFL might be synonymous. And the NFL became a huge blunder for Dumont because um, when they first signed the deal, they got 10 of the 12 teams on board for games. They introduced Saturday Night Football that didn't at that time interfere with uh, the college. And, and so they kind of brand this, and they had the New York Giants, the Philadelphia Eagles, the Lions, Redskins, Browns. So they have a lot of the teams that you would recognize today. They got all 10 teams for $1 million. So that, that was the rights they paid. And then for that first season, it was Westinghouse that was the main sponsor, uh, the national sponsor, if you will. And they had some issues circumventing local sponsors because every team had a local sponsor, but they were able to work around that. Well, when the second year of the contract comes up, General Motors is interested and Westinghouse said, no, we're going to renew. So Dumont, which already had this deal with Westinghouse, renews the deal. Well, Westinghouse comes back like six months later and tells Ted Bergman, uh, we, 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 can't, we don't want to do this anymore. The, the, the book doesn't really give a reason why this happens, but Westinghouse suddenly loses interest in the NFL. So Bergman thinks, I have General Motors. So he lets Westinghouse out of the contract they signed for the second renewal, or the first renewal, if you will, for the second season. Mm-hmm. General Motors says, okay, let's see the terms of the contract. The fact that they had to circumvent local sponsors turns off General Motors. They said, no, we want to just be the national sponsor throughout. We're not working with these local guys. And they said, no deal. So Mm. now suddenly Dumont has no sponsor for the NFL. And they couldn't find one. Season begins. They had to give the games to the local affiliates. They uh, end up losing $2 million in the deal. Yeah, and, and that is a bad business decision, right? Right, and 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 we have to remember we're talking about the '50s, so two things on that: one, the NFL is nowhere near what we we know of it to be today. And as Steve alluded to, college was—I mean, college is still king in a certain sense today. But college was college football was really the football as far as U.S. football that that we would watch. Um, the second thing is just so we understand the numbers. Um, you know, if you just do your basic calculation here, so Steve was talking about a $1 million contract in the early 50s, that's still a steal today because in, in 2014 dollars, that's that's only about uh, uh, almost $9 million, which is still uh, relatively peanuts. But um, yeah, and then and then the third thing I just want to point out for those of you who aren't familiar, we're throwing around this, this company named Westinghouse. And today Westinghouse isn't really, I mean, may, I, I don't know uh, uh, people who, who are listening, if you want to kind of comment on this and, and correct me, feel free to. 
but Westinghouse might still do maybe some industrial uh, 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 applications, but Westinghouse used to be this huge company for commercial products, retail products, home appliances, et cetera, electronics. And so they were a major player uh, back in the 50s. They were not a small fry. I think by the time we were growing up, they kind of were, you know, they hmm. maybe, maybe grandma had like a Westinghouse dishwasher toaster, or something yeah. or toaster. Yeah, or something. I think so. But they were a major player back then. And, and in fact, you know, as Steve's talking about alluding to this relationship, it's Westinghouse who ends up buying the uh, flag uh, flagship Pittsburgh station from Dumont in, in $56 or 55 or 50, $1955, $56, something like 24 million or $35 million. That's how important the Pittsburgh station was. Um, and, and so, yeah, so Westinghouse was a major player. They had that kind of cash to, to pony up then. And just as an aside, particularly in Pittsburgh, uh, listeners might remember, or you guys might recall that um, Westinghouse was tied to the original commercial radio broadcast from KDKA in Pittsburgh in 1920. Uh, the, uh, the, it was kind of a publicity stunt to sell sets, of course, just like Sarnoff would do some 19 years later. Uh, but KDKA on November 2nd, 1920, uh, broadcast the returns of the Harding-Cox presidential election. So, yeah, Westinghouse was, yeah. was a big player um, all through this period. And uh, so if you take programming and you look at some of the limitations, I think a lot of arrows can point to the VHF, UHF controversy that uh, Dumont end up, ends up going to the FCC, actually talks to Eisenhower, goes in Eisenhower's office while he's president, talks to him about this, and Eisenhower can't even do much for him. Uh, and, and what this Catch-22 was with this UHF, VHF was that because Dumont didn't have the audience – they couldn't charge advertising rates to get enough money to buy, quote unquote, expensive programs like NBC and CBS had, where you really have a huge budget for a great production. And, and because you can't do the great production, you therefore can't attract the audience, and it's just a loop. So they're stuck in this loop, and the crux of this argument for Dumont was there cannot be intermixing markets where UHF and VHF coincide. Because TV receivers were, were built with VHF receivers only, audiences who wanted to get UHF stations, once UHF was a higher altitude of wavelengths for reception, they had to buy a converter and put an antenna on their roof. So because this was a big hassle, not a lot of people were buying into UHF, and why would you? You love your NBC and your CBS on the VHF stations. So where's the incentive to then be able to reach Dumont uh, or, or other networks that were on a UHF station? So Dumont, has this idea and he pitches this to the FCC saying it's not a level playing field. Just because you opened up more spectrum space does not mean that VHF and UHF are equal and now everyone's happy because you can have four, four networks in a market. And what needs to be done essentially is you have to segregate every market and designate it as either a UHF market or a VHF market. Only then will you truly have an equal playing field where Dumont can now um, compete with an NBC, a CBS, because they're all on the same wavelength, right. if you will. And Congress doesn't do this. To me, that's really the crux of this issue, is the VHF-UHF controversy. That was the main limitation for all that Dumont was trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you if you look up some references, you know, it'll say like at the height of Dumont, which is about the middle, so, you know, 54-ish, you know, they were affiliated, and that's a, a very... Uh, choice word there uh, with about 200 different stations but that doesn't mean that that was actually their stable network 
Whereas NBC, or I, I believe it's NBC at that time, we're dealing with, and we're talking stable, solid markets, 120 uh, uh, affiliates. So, yeah, I think it, it definitely would have leveled the playing field, although, to and admittedly, I'm not an expert at this technology, but uh, I still don't know how they would have competed in those UHF sort of smaller market uh, uh, sort, of, sort of channels. Um, well, let me see if I can clarify yeah. because what I've read about this. So, so VHF stands for very high frequency and goes from channels one to thirteen. Mm -hmm. So, one is kind of this FM space, as I understand it, and channels two to thirteen became the main twelve channels for VHF television. Right. So, then the licensing freeze happens, and when uh, FCC and Congress get everything straightened out, and they they know they have to open up more spectrum space. They have channels fourteen to ninety six. And those are the UHF channels. So you get this higher frequency broadcast, if you will. Well, stations in every market, Dumont's argument was, you can convert them. So if you have, an all, if you have NBC and CBS on VHF in a market and Dumont's on UHF, well, if you designate that UHF, then those two VHF stations could change to a higher frequency and, and they could all become UHF broadcasting. I see. It didn't change anything that the, the stations were doing, it just changed the frequency on which they broadcast from their right. tower. So that was Dumont's argument that this is very doable. Just say, all right, Pittsburgh, you have to be all VHF. And now you can give me my VHF license instead of giving me a UHF license. Right. And, and so that was part of the problem that Dumont saw, uh, this intermixing of these two signals. And UHF is ultra high frequency for that obviously yeah. higher spectrum space yeah well i think then you know I I at least in that short term in the time that we've talked about that it was so necessary for their continued development i think it definitely would have cleared the playing field and it reminds me of um because they also designated you know space for educational programming and during this whole sort of uhf you know boondoggle or whatever you want to call it there's great stories of like certain certain owners going like uh can I just swap you my station for the educational, uh, the one that's, you know, occupying the space? Like, no, nah, you can't get away with doing that. Because mm -hmm. they basically, you know, they wanted to then t occupy that channel space and then take away the educational programming. Right. Because it was valuable, valuable uh, spectrum real estate. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately the technology would have still grown as it as it did. And it television would have changed in the 60s like it did. Blah, 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 blah. But I think, yeah, it would have allowed Dumont to hang on. Now, maybe they still would have broken up in 65 or 66, but it definitely, I think they would have lasted a lot, uh, a lot longer. In addition to the kind of technical problems, UHF versus VHF, things that we'll get into, you know, in another episode later, uh, what ultimately brought down uh, Dumont as a network was this kind of ill-fated uh, relationship with, with Paramount, the, uh, the motion picture uh, studio. Uh, which, you know, was a combination of different factors kind of played into this, uh, among which were, you know, uh, management issues, some personality clashes, butting of heads, a few other things. In the beginning, you know, Paramount was there to support Dumont, and that was when Paramount Pictures also owned theaters. They were a movie studio and a theater group, and they were one company. Uh, and so when you see them become split, Paramount Pictures is what ultimately is part of the 26% ownership group of Dumont from that initial loan. And Paramount Theaters, which had to be spun off because of antitrust laws, ends up merging with ABC. Um, and so you see that Paramount now has kind of two footholds in, in network television between Dumont and ABC, although they're counted as two separate entities. The thing about Paramount Pictures and where I think perhaps the, the theaters merging with ABC helped ABC, Paramount Pictures did not want 
according to Dumont insiders, did not want Dumont the network to succeed. So the big issue was anytime Alan Dumont needed money, he felt he couldn't go to Paramount Pictures because it would deal with stock options. And if you get stock options that go above 51% or above 50%, right, you lose control of your company. Right. So he knew he couldn't get any more cash from Paramount or they would try to take over his company, which he did not want to happen. At the same time, they wouldn't allow him to go get money from other companies. So he couldn't bring any more investors on board either. Paramount would prevent that because they had members on the board. And so you're kind of stuck, right? And, and, and that's where the innovations of the manufacturing that we talked about had to come out because there's no other way to support yourself. And that's, and that's really to, to, to connect with what we are talking about earlier with your big question of, of UHF, VHF. If that had been changed, would that have allowed Dumont to survive? And I think, I think the, 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 the sibling question is, had they not gotten into bed, uh, the, uh, <laughs> metaf- you know, metaphorically with, uh, with Paramount, would this history, would this story be totally different? Because Paramount is always the constant thorn in the side of Alan B. Dumont, uh, for all the reasons you just you just mentioned, right? That he's always over a barrel with Paramount, um, and in a sense, it's almost like a still a, a stillbirth regarding the network. They never have any room to to, to maneuver uh, along uh, various lines. So yeah, it's very interesting. So as the wheels are coming off, Leonard Goldenson, who is the head of Paramount Theaters, which merged with ABC, all right. So he's on the board of ABC, uh, offers a merge offer with Alan B. Dumont because at that time, let's just not forget, ABC is not uh, a titan. Uh, ABC really only catches up to NBC and CBS really in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So ABC right. and Dumont are really sort of fighting it out at this time. And uh, so merging them would probably sound like a pretty decent idea, especially if it was a last-ditch effort. Well, Goldenson had had pitched the deal. Right. And because Paramount Pictures, yeah. or they saw as being screwed by the theater group, because the theater group said, you have to wait in line with everyone else to get your movies shown. And they thought even with the, di- with the, the divesture, they could still just say, hey, Paramount Theaters, here's a whole bunch of Paramount movies throwing your theaters. Mm-hmm. And Goldenson saying, no, that's not how it works now. You get in line with MGM and everyone else, and we'll pick the movies we want. Mm. That They took that as a slight. So according to Bergman's book, when Dumont goes to the board and says, I, w- I think we should do this deal, um, it's the board who the Paramount people on the board who say, Goldenson, we're not doing anything with him, basically. So again, Paramount sort of blocks the man, yes. Alan B. Dumont. Yes. The lone moneymaker for the network at that point is really the Pittsburgh station, and they're forced to sell it off to Westinghouse. So once that occurs, there is no leverage on the part of Dumont anymore. I mean, that's really ripping the heart out of the, out of the network. There was... The, you know, it was um, it was what sort of countered all the losses everywhere else in the in the in the network. And then there's attempts and, and I don't remember if this is to save or just it just literally gutting the institution. But they eventually uh, spin off the manufacturing, the, the television set manufacturing. And that, as we alluded to really early in this episode, um, they always marketed themselves as the high end quality television set. Right. And the fact is, is once everyone understood that everyone was into television, they wanted a television, well, then we uh, perfected some mass production of television and could lower that, lower that price point so it was quite affordable. So suddenly that, that, that strategy of saying this is a, 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 a upper echelon sort of big ticket item uh, doesn't really help. And so they, they lose a little bit there. Yeah, and what happens during the whole time that the manufacturing arm is supporting the broadcast network? He's selling all his patents. 
So where you may have had this really unique Dumont TV that has a tuning eye and has a cathode ray tube and three color tube in one, this this really sleek kind of product. And probably UHF and VHF. Right. Tuners. Everyone else has already. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He sold all his patents away. So now you, you have nothing unique. Yeah. I mean, pick, pick, pick your pick your analogy, pick your metaphor. But I mean, the cupboard is bare at this point. And, and, and Paramount's had a gun to your head, the, you know, the, right, the, the right. entire time. Um, so that's really, I mean, that's really the, the end. And, 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 and the legacy of it is that the, uh, the remaining stations, that I believe the D.C. station and perhaps the New York station, um, which, again, especially if you grew up in the Northeast, like I, th- I believe all three of us grew up in the Northeast, is you don't really see it. But, you know, the Northeast has really always been the power block for so many things in our country, and certainly with broadcasting. Um, and so to hold prominent stations in those two markets is, is really important. Um, and they were valuable. And eventually they get bought out um, by uh, what becomes uh, Metro Media. What's really fun is that the, the, the first successful fourth network that appears is of course uh rupert murdoch's fox right that begins in 80s in really in, in 87 well some of those stations that ends up creating and becoming a part of the fox group are those old metro media uh, mm-hmm. stations so those pieces are finally reused down the road to go from one for the first really the first failed fourth network to the first successful fourth uh, uh network one of my favorite parts about the Dumont story. The rumor that um, at some point after uh, after Dumont went off the air in 1956 that their entire tape library uh, ended up in uh, Manhattan Harbor at some point. So the deal was that in uh, 1996 um, the Library of Congress was holding some public hearings on television video preservation. Um, and in the course of these public hearings, uh, the widow of Ernie Kovacs uh, testified. So in the course of uh, uh, Ms. Kovacs' uh, testimony uh, before the, uh, the public hearing uh, by the Library of Congress, uh, she, uh, she started talking about what had happened to uh, some of the early uh, Dumont Network kinescopes and recordings um, that she knew, you know, about through her husband, and she had she testified that in the early 1970s, as pieces of Dumont were being carved up and sold to other people, uh, there was uh, a bit of a negotiation about who would be responsible for all of the uh, the, the Dumont library of shows that were uh, being stored at one of Dumont's facilities, and nobody kind of really wanted to take responsibility for all this old stuff. They didn't really see the value in it. Um, they didn't really see the value in, you know, sharing or, or the expense of, of going through storing them in, you know, some of these, the, the old kinescope material has to be stored at, you know, a certain temperature and whatnot. Um, so nobody wanted to do that. Nobody wanted to take care of this stuff. And apparently uh, Ms. Kovacs says that one of the lawyers doing the bargaining uh, said that he would, quote, unquote, take care of it. And the way in which he took care of it uh, was that uh, late or in the wee hours of the morning, um, uh, this guy had uh, a couple of semis back up to the loading dock at the storage facility, uh, fill these trucks with kinescopes and videotapes, and uh, the uh, semis drove off uh, to a waiting barge, uh, which took all of the kinescopes and recordings and dumped them um, in the, uh, the New York Harbor, um, Upper New York Bay. Um, yeah. So very... Yeah, and as you said, I mean, this story is relayed on the wonderful, wonderful website uh, on Dumont. But, uh, I mean, terrible. I mean, can you think of another example of losing that much 
media? Or really, I mean, from your perspective as a historian, losing that much of an archive, is there any, any I mean, I mean, parallel it, example? It, it calls to mind, like, these episodes in ancient Chinese history where uh, the new emperor would take over, and in the course of the rebellion, they would burn all the books and the libraries from the previous regime so that it never existed at all. Now, this is nothing quite like that, but... Still, you have this mass destruction of of texts and documents so on a large scale. You're um, saying this is the same as every new network executive who comes in and cancels every show that was put into motion by his predecessor. Yeah, I mean it could be <laughs> like that. I mean, them. Th- this seemed to this <laughs> seemed to come see? this seemed to come down to definitely nobody wanted to take the responsibility for these things. They were just gathering dust, and it was an enormous expense to take care of the the very fragile material. Admittedly. Some of these shows probably aren't the greatest thing to have to want to sit there and watch, especially if there was a t- particularly bad episode or had a lot of mistakes, etc. But to get a true feel, just like just like you know, if you're talking right now, you may not want to you really use a website from 1997, but there's still something quite educational about looking at a website from 1997 about why we did it the way we did it. I think it has that same value. Uh, it, 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 unfortunately, if we had, could have saved uh, uh, more of those kinescopes to really look back at how Dumont did it. Um, to really get the flavor of it. Uh, So we're just about out of time for this episode of Inside the Box. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Our discussion of the not-so-magical, ill-fated, some might even say cursed, uh, history of the fourth uh, forgotten network, uh, Dumont, uh, which we learned uh, made some pretty critical innovations uh, in in the television industry in its early going, but unfortunately uh, they had uh, too many forces uh, arrayed against them, both uh, internally and externally, and uh, we can only imagine what they may have been had you know things worked out differently. Uh, so, uh, for myself, Andrew Salvati, uh, Steve Voorhees and Jonathan Bullinger. See you next time. Captain Video is written by M.C. Brock and directed by Larry White. Your announcer has been Fred Scott. This is the Dumont Television Network.